Welcome to the EggerSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. We have a great webinar planned today, and we want to thank our funders for making that happen. Um, through funding support from SAMHSA, the Promise Initiative builds the work of the original USDA Rural Health and Safety Education Funded Project, Preventing Opioid Misuse in the Southeast, or PROMISE 1.0, and focuses on promoting behavior change at the educator and consumer level that can prevent opioid misuse and abuse among rural Mississippians, that's adults, youth, and ag producers, by teaching individuals how to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental illnesses and substance use disorders. We are offering continuing education credits today um, you can get credits through the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, American Dental Association, oops, apologies, American Dental Association, and Accreditation Council for Pharmacy Education. In the interest of transparency, we want to disclose any conflicts of interest. Neither the planners nor the speaker of this webinar have uh, relevant financial relationships to disclose. Our presenter today is Dr. Heather Lyons-Burney. She serves as clinical assistant professor for the UMKC School of Pharmacy satellite site at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. Throughout her career, she has promoted the profession of pharmacy and encouraged the development of team-based patient-centered care and innovative services in the community practice setting, as well as the importance of community engagement. Um, we're really excited to have you here, Dr. Lyons-Burney, and I will turn it over for you to get started. Okay, thank you. With School of Pharmacy at MSU, and I'm happy today to talk to you all about using naloxone to reverse opioid overdose in the agricultural workplace. And really, this information is a lot to do uh, for employers, and um, hopefully we'll give you some tips and tricks in why this is important to have within your workplace as well. So we're gonna cover a couple of different objectives. Um, one of those is, you know, what is opioid use? A lot about that, but let's dive a little deeper. What are prescription or illicit opioids? What are some of the dangers in the workplace, safety sensitive agricultural uh, occupations? Um, how do we use naloxone in opioid overdose? How do you administer it? And then where does it fit into the workplace um, health programs and, and safety program? So to start, what is opioid use disorder? So it's, it's important to recognize that substance use disorders and specifically opioid use disorder are technically medical diagnosis. So as a medical diagnosis. So these are you know, incredibly important things. Uh, that you, you will have um, to, to understand and that we use those terms really to reduce the stigma, which we'll talk about in a minute. You know, why is it considered a medical diagnosis? And so some of the things that we think about and the American Medical Association has said, there are basically three elements that define a disease. And those three elements are the symptoms, the progression and the prognosis. And so we think of substance use disorders and opioid use disorder as a brain disease for 
So the symptoms are the criteria that we look at and how we diagnose. So when you think about a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder, um, is that person using more than intended? Are they doing it in a way relationships? Does it cause negative consequences? Um, not just um, socially, but maybe even physically. Are they experiencing some withdrawal? Does it pro progress? Is it predictable? It's worse. And then there's prognosis. So what, are, what is the prognosis with OUD or SUD? Um, sometimes that uh, can be recovery. Um, but as we know, and, and the things that we worry about, are, it can cause death. And so we don't want that to happen. And so um, we need to think a bit about this more as literally a medical condition. Why do people, oh, there we go. Why do people, and so how does it progress really to use? And so, oops, let me go back one. This chart I like because it kind of shows in the middle, you know, this is normal. This is um, like how people feel uh, normally. When you first start using an opioid, when someone does, they may experience some euphoria. Um, not everyone does, uh, but sometimes you experience that. And so when you first use it, you have no tolerance to it. So that euphoria is a little bit higher. Over time, as someone uh, misuse opioids, that euphoria decreases to the point that they may almost go down and experience some withdrawal where they are developing that physical dependent tolerance. And so at that point, people are using the opioid literally to just get into that normal phase too. And so clearly that's when we know that that brain chemistry changes as well. So this is just a very basic chart that talks about dopamine. So dopamine being one of our neurotransmitters. And so when we think about dopamine, when, and the reason why we eat food is, and the reason why we continue to eat, seek, seek that is because dopamine's released, your body tells you, yes, you should eat. And so it, you know, it makes people feel better. Um, nicotine, we talk about with tobacco smoking is, is very challenging to Smoking. And so this is about that level of dopamine release for that cocaine. You hear about cocaine and how dangerous that can be and how challenging it is um, for those for people to stop using cocaine. And again, about that dopamine release. When we talk about heroin, you can really see that dramatic um, dopamine level that happens. And then you can again how that must be doing something to really change that brain chemistry there and really kind of helps you understand why recovery is challenging and that we are not only asking that person to stop it, but we're also having their, their brain needs to heal during that time. Think about um, opioids. You know, a lot of times people ask, you know, what are opioid analgesics? What is an opioid? Well, as we know, you know, some opioids are prescription strength. So uh, we have the opiate Ultra substances from opium, like your morphine and your codeine. So these are very old substances that have been used for many years and they actually come from a poppy plant. So hundreds and hundreds of years we've used opioids. And then we moved in synthetic opioids, oxycodone and hydrocodone, things created in the lab 
um, to kind of help manage pain for people. And then we move to the synthetic opioids that are again, prescription, fentanyl that we use in surgical um, methadone that you've possibly seen used for, for treatment as well. Um, so those are prescription strength opiates, um, unique reasons obviously. And then we think about illicit opiates. So that's when we get into heroin. It's still an opiate, of course, but we think about those um, ones that are happening there too. So, um, and that may help my internet as well. Um, so with the illicit opiates, uh, we have um, heroin, and then you use quite a bit, the synthetic, the fentanyl analogs. So when we hear about those, the things that are made illegally that look like fentanyl. So uh, the carfentanil that we hear about, that's the super strong. Um, fentanyl that's hap that is just takes a very minuscule amount. We also hear about the dangers of fentanyl that's cut into heroin or the counterfeit opioids, um, or even potentially put into things like or into marijuana. So those um, incredibly dangerous things that are happening as well. Um, we also uh, hear about, um, and, and one thing to kind of visualize, which is helpful, is the potency. So, you know, when you look at heroin, this is a, um, a fatal dose of each of these three. So this is the amount of heroin that could be fatal. Um, this is the amount of fentanyl. Okay, so as we discussed, um, there are many ways that you can get opioids, uh, obviously the illicit ones, but we also talk about opioid use and managing pain and how do we get that. When you think about all the different ways that we have access to opioids and how we have in the past, um, acute pain, a work-related injury, a dental procedure, surgery, um, chronic pain, things like um, neurological pain, maybe an arthritis or an arthritic pain, a joint pain, you know, something that could be surgically repaired or possibly not. Due to this the CDC guidelines and other organizations like occupational medicine guidelines, we really have seen a large shift in opioid use for managing pain and are really looking a lot more at transitioning to other medications, uh, which is a good thing. Um, one of the things that's happened, if we look to the next slide, which is the U.S. County opioid dispensing rates for 2012, you can see on that map, which is basically a geographical distribution by county and by state, but if you look at it specifically by county, it looks at opioid prescriptions dispensed per 100 persons. And this was from um, a, a gap in time. So this is showing um, 2012, and that was about the peak. So it started to rise about to 2006 and then really peaked at 2012 to more than 255 million prescriptions and a dispensing rate of 81.3 prescriptions per 100 people. So you think about that, 81 out of 100 people in 2012 could have had an opioid prescription. And I don't know 80 of the 100 people that I know, 81 of them are probably not needing opioids. So you can really see that. And again, this was about that peak when that was happening. Then on the next slide, it shows the U.S. County opioid dispensing rates for 2019, which we definitely saw a steady decline. 
2019 is really the had fallen to the lowest in 14 years. And then in that data, it's about 46 prescriptions per 100 people. Um, but there are still pockets of, of the country where the, it remains pretty high. So in about 5% of U.S. counties, there are enough opioid prescriptions for every single person in that county to have one. And so those are some of those areas where we're concerned um, in those hotspot areas uh, for sure. And so, you know, why do we care about the opioid dispensing rates? You know, on the next slide, it really discusses how two-thirds of heroin users um, misuse prescription painkillers first. And so oftentimes we are concerned about um, the control, the dispensing, how is someone managing pain through opioids because they may not be able to get it anymore. And then they would switch to an illicit substance um, can be dangerous as we talked about things like the heroin with fentanyl cut into it, incredibly dangerous, um, but definitely things that are accessible, unfortunately. And then um, oftentimes uh, cost is a, is a big thing as well um, for patients. If you flip to the next slide, it, it really describes the three waves of the rise in opioid overdose deaths. So the CDC has some great information and statistics that look at this with that first wave uh, beginning with increased prescribing of opioids in the 90s. That's where we first started to hear about it, increased overdose deaths. Second wave really began about 2010, rapid increases that not only involved prescription opioids, but we began to see heroin. Again, about the time when prescribers were prescribing less, there might have been some people who had become dependent and were switching to heroin. Third wave in about 2013 with significant increases in overdose deaths involving those synthetic opioids, especially the illicitly manufactured fentanyl. So that's where we really were concerned about it as well. So um, definitely still a concern um, that, we're, that we're looking at um, and, and things that we um, need to, to be concerned about. Again, prescription opioids have potentially decreased, but the illicit opioids, not so much. So next slide shows, um, you know, why do we care? Um, in the farming population, there are injuries that happen, of course, and we in the Midwest have a significant amount of farmers in the area. The 2017 census data said there's 3.0 million farmers in the United States, and that the top five with the most farmers are right in the middle. So Texas, Missouri, Iowa, Ohio, and Oklahoma kind of rounding out those top five. Interestingly, the number of farmers in our country actually has increased by 7% over the last census in 2012. So even more um, uh, concern for addressing that agricultural population. So on the next slide, we talk about how the agricultural sector continues to rank among one of the most hazardous injuries, where every day about 100 agricultural workers suffer a lost work time injury. And so, again, they have an injury. It's an acute injury. They might be prescribed an opioid, or if they don't have funds for that, they may try to self-medicate. So we really need to be concerned about that. The next slide really describes the scope of the opioid crisis as it impacts farmers and farm workers. So 74% of farmers and farm workers say they've been directly impacted by the opioid epidemic. Three in four 
say it's easy to access large amounts of opioids without a prescription. And the other thing, too, is only one in three say it would be easy to access um, treatment for an addiction. Again, we kind of are concerned about that as well. So the next slide kind of summarizes those risk factors as we've, we talked about. So number one, it's the nature of the work, right? So it's dangerous, it's safety sensitive. Number two, we can have occupational injuries that occur simply due to the nature of the work. Number three, as we know, farmers are doing this for generations and generations. And this is, you know, in their, the thing that they love to do and something that they do forever. Sometimes that results in some chronic pain. They may also have some other comorbidities that um, impact their, their pain abilities. Um, number four, we talked about prescribing patterns, you know, looking at where are those opioids being prescribed. Sometimes they are concentrated, quite honestly, in those rural communities. So we need to pay attention to that. We need to have our providers on board as well, identifying those people at risk. And then number five, stigma and stereotypes. So that is always a big concern as well. The next slide shows the stigma and substance use disorders in that more than 20% of, of people did not seek treatment due to negative impact on their employment, whether that was perceived impact or simply that they felt like it was going to impact their ability to work um, is, is one thing. More than 17% were concerned how their community would view them as well. So as we know, fear of stigma is one of the major roadblocks to accepting services for substance use disorder and can obviously lead to poorer health outcomes. And it sometimes, you, as you know, can be felt more acutely in those small rural towns because there's a relative lack of anonymity. Um, it's hard to hide if you or a family member are going in for a treatment. And so, again, goes all the way back to we need to think about uh, substance use disorder as a medical condition, something we can treat, and something that we can encourage people to go get treatment for. And so, as employers, you know, how do we support those employees as well? So. Um, one of the things that we can do, obviously, to help identify patients that are having issues or to prevent those from happening is, and the next slide shows it, is having naloxone available. So, again, naloxone's in an emergency situation, but um, it does help provide harm reduction and prevention of overdose death. So, that's what we'll talk about here um, in the next portion. So on the next slide, it describes, you know, what is naloxone? So um, many of us have heard about it. We often hear about the word Narcan. So Narcan is the brand name for naloxone. Um, interestingly, sometimes people get confused naloxone with naltrexone. Naltrexone is a different medication, also used in substance abuse treatment, but not for overdose. So naloxone is the thing that works for overdose. It's important to know that it works in less than three minutes but it can be shorter acting than opioids. So that's of a concern. So on the next slide, it shows that naloxone is obviously that medication that reverses the effect of an opioid overdose. Its onset can be pretty quick, two to three minutes. And on the next slide, it shows that naloxone's effects start to wear off after about 30 minutes and are typically gone by about 90 minutes. So it lasts for about 60 minutes. It's important to remember that, again, that opioid can last longer in the body than the naloxone can. So you 
still have to call 911. You still have to um, seek emergency medical attention. Important, again, to think about um, how long does it take EMS to get to where you're at? How, so it, why do we have this in, at the workplace? It's because of this. If we can keep that person breathing and get there and get EMS there before they slip back into an overdose is, is incredibly important. So on the next slide, it describes how there's different types of naloxone. So we can get it through uh, multiple different avenues. Um, as well. And so thinking about what would be most convenient for you to have in your workplace emergency kit um, or on, on your person. So um, typically we think about the easiest way is that nasal spray, that Narcan nasal spray. Um, interestingly, uh, it's still available as a brand name. There has been a generic um, uh, Narcan approved, so it would be a naloxone nasal spray. It has not yet been released um, to the public, unfortunately, but which would help hopefully reduce the price, um, but uh, it is available. And then it's also available as an injection. So as a shot into a muscle, um, much like you would get for um, like a vaccine or something um, into a muscle, like a large muscle, like the leg or the um, upper arm. And so we see that happen sometimes with the naloxone injection or um, there's an auto injector called FZO, which is um, really nice because it kind of talks you through it, much like an uh, automatic defibrillator or an AED would, but it's pretty pricey. So co most cost effective is that naloxone injection that you'd have to, but you need to have someone comfortable enough to give that. So we'll look at that here in a moment too. So Next slide really describes how naloxone is effective. So the American Medical Association does endorse distribution to anyone at risk of having or witnessing an overdose. Because as we think about it, we're probably gonna witness the overdose or potential overdose. And so we need to have it available. And the Surgeon General says, yes, it's important to have naloxone and expand its availability um, for sure. So uh, next slide kind of shows what, you know, what am I looking at when I'm thinking about an opioid overdose? What, you know, why am I going to give this? Am I concerned if I walk up on someone? So there are typical signs and symptoms that can occur. Typically, the person's breathing will be slow, possibly absent. Usually, the person is not moving. So again, they're not moving. They can't be woken up. They can't give this to themselves. Somebody needs to administer it to them. Sometimes they may show signs of decreased oxygen uh, in that their lips and nails might be blue. That's pretty dangerous. They might hear, you might hear some gurgling sounds, meaning that they're having trouble breathing there too. They may, uh, that gurgling may appear like choking. And then um, the pinpoint pupils uh, are another thing as well. Uh, next slide kind of shows what's the bottom line. Do we need to worry about all those different signs and symptoms? No, just keep it simple. If someone is um, passed out, has ineffective or absent breathing, um, is, uh, you know, maybe has those pinpoint pupils, or, but they're definitely depressed, naloxone is appropriate. Whether or not you think it's naloxone, um, I have heard sometimes people will say like, oh, this person's only using um, Xanax. That's all that they were doing. Or, oh, they were only doing marijuana. Well, as we know, uh, fentanyl has creeped into those. 
And so whether they knew it or not, they may have um, experienced a fentanyl overdose. So giving naloxone could potentially save a life. So the next slide shows what to do if someone overdoses. So call 911, obviously, first thing that you should do, uh, and then give one dose of naloxone. Sometimes we say those can be flipped if needed um, to give the dose of naloxone and then call 911. But regardless, we need to send uh, the emergency medical services ASAP. The next thing we need to do is administer rescue breaths and put that person in a recovery position. Um, again, we're possibly worried that that person might get sick and we don't want them to aspirate. You also want to stay with the person. And if you need to, if after two to three minutes, they're still not breathing well, uh, they're still gurgly, you really haven't noticed anything different, go ahead and give that second dose as well. So um, those are kind of critical things that you want to look at. Um, rescue breathing, as we know, is um, one breath every sec seven seconds. And that's critically important because, you know, if you think about those signs and symptoms, if someone's having um, blue lips, they're not getting a lot of oxygen. So regardless of if they come out of that overdose or not, they may have some, some brain damage. So we've got to get oxygen to the brain. And so uh, really important for us to do that. Um, 911 is important too. And, and what we encourage people to do is stay with the person. There are good Samaritan laws that are all across the country. And typically those good Samaritan laws will allow, um, you know, the person that called 911, even if they were using with that person um, to, to kind of be off the hook, you're saving someone's life. So, um, so check out those good Samaritan laws. Um, as well, uh, and let your employees know about it too, um, and, and make sure that everyone's aware. Um, so next slide shows, so let's start with the types of naloxone. So let's look at that prepackaged nasal spray. So that Narcan nasal spray, again, it comes in a box that has two doses, and we know we need two doses because we give one, we wait two to three minutes. If we need to, we give the second one as well. So um, there's not really any opioid that is resistant to naloxone, but sometimes, depending on the amount of naloxone or the type, it may take two doses for them to, uh, to, for it to be effective. No one can build up tolerance or resistance to naloxone either. Naloxone is going to go in, it's going to kick that opioid off of that receptor, and so it just may take two doses to do it, but um, it is important to do. And remember, the half-life or the amount of time that naloxone can stay in there is shorter oftentimes than that opioid. And so it's going to be gone um, in about 60 minutes. We need to make sure that we're staying with that person as well. So this Narcan um, nasal spray, again, it's prepackaged. It's, it's super easy. You spray it into a nostril. Again, the onset of action is anywhere from, they say, two to five minutes. Usually it's two to three minutes there. Um, typically, uh, you can, depending on the state you're in, um, purchase it for yourself, uh, you know, it, with your insurance or that sort of thing. A lot of times insurance will have a, a diminished copay um, for that as well. So um, if you get prescribed an opioid, say you have dental surgery, say you went in and had some other kind of surg surgical need, your pharmacist may ask, you know, do, are you, do you want to have some naloxone on hand? Or I'd recommend that you have naloxone on hand. So in that instance, again, we can cover it through, um, 
through the insurance company as well. So the next slide shows um, how to use the Narcan or Naloxone nasal spray. So super easy. You just peel it back on the package. That's step one. Next slide shows step two, uh, depressing the plunger. Um, really important to kind of position it just like you see in the slide here in that um, fingers go on either side of it. That plunger looks pretty long and scary. Um, so if you put the fingers there, it kind of really does help uh, put the point the nasal spray in the area where it should go. And then you just push up that plunger and it will spray into the nose. Um, and you can just um, use it once. Next slide kind of shows what that mist would look like um, when it was released into the patient's nose. So making sure that gets in there. Sometimes I have the question, what if somebody falls, uh, you know, maybe when they overdose, they fell and, and hit them, hit their head or something. And there's maybe some blood there. Um, essentially, we just tell everyone just, if you can wipe it away, use the nostril that seems um, less occluded, uh, potentially, and go ahead and spray it in there. Regardless of if there's something in there, it's, it's important to get some naloxone in there and hopefully they'll get a, a good, good enough dose to be able to respond. So the next slide shows there's injectable naloxone. So some pharmacies may have it available, and which is kind of interesting too, is that there's an injectable form that has the ability to um, use a nasal atomizer that can be screwed onto the end of it, and um, you can use it in that manner. Or again, just kind of your typical... Um, draw it up from a vial and administer it as well. Same thing. It's going to last about two to three minutes. It's going to wear off in the same amount of time, regardless of how you give it, either in, in the muscle or in the, the nasal spray either. So the next slide shows what it looks like to give an intramuscular injection. So typically, you'll just remove the cap. The vials, you just pull out the entire contents of that vial. They're little bitty vials, um, which are usually a one milliliter dose. Um, so a, a pretty small amount, you'll just pull it back. In some of these emergency kits, you will have, most of them will have kind of those syringes there and readily available for you. Just the easy thing is you just pull the entire contents of that vial out of there. And then what you're going to do is you're going to inject it. Um, just straight in. So straight in at a 90 degree angle, again, into a large muscle. So the upper arm or thigh um, or the outer uh, buttocks. And so that's where um, you kind of think about when you're giving, maybe someone's getting a uh, vaccine. That's, those are some of those areas. So just in one of those large muscles that you have access to is really important to do. So the next slide shows the fancy auto-injectable format. So this is the injectable naloxone that is a pre-filled one. Um, again, it's meant to kind of go on that outer thigh. And once it's activated, uh, the device kind of talks to you, um, similar to a defibrillator. Um, each container of the Evzio will come with a trainer and it'll demonstrate how to use it. So it's important if this is something that you have at your workplace that you're familiar with how to use it and um, describe it in that workplace as well to those um, that might be responding to an emergency. This is how you use it. Again, super easy, pretty expensive though, um, but sometimes there's programs and coupons 
sort of situations that help you afford it as well. So a lot of times people will ask, and on the next slide it shows, you know, what happens after an overdose is reversed? So about half the people getting naloxone, there's no negative side effects at all. So, but sometimes if you think about what you're doing, you're kicking that opioid off of that receptor. And if you have someone who has a physical dependence to that opioid, you're going to promote withdrawal, right? And so sometimes people may be irritable, about 20%. Sometimes people, again, will experience sort of those symptoms of withdrawal, which is about 19%. Um, some people can be sick and vomit, and that's why we want them in that recovery position. And then some patients can be combative, but it's pretty small. It's not like the movies where you see people jump up and start flailing around. Um, it really is most of the time they're, they're, they feel pretty groggy. They may not feel well. They may be um, nauseous and have some vomiting if they have that physical dependence. Most of the time, it's really no negative side effects. So important to remember too, and this is a pretty common question, is that you know what if again what if the person um, is it's not it's not an opioid and I gave them this naloxone am I going to hurt them? And no, you're not. So you know you can give naloxone um, no matter what. It's not going to hurt the person. Um, I, someone could give me a naloxone injection right now. Uh, I don't have any opiates on board. It's really not going to do anything to me. So uh, no negative consequences for you giving naloxone simply because you suspected it, which is a good thing. So no opiates, all it's, all it's there, all it's going to do is kick that opiate off the receptor. So it's okay to give it and um, okay to to uh, to. Administer it regardless of, of what you're concerned about that overdose being. Again, a lot of times um, overdose is not just one thing. So uh, maybe if they had um, something else on board that was making them pretty drowsy, they may still be fairly groggy. All the naloxone is going to do is kick the opiate off the receptor. And what that opiate's doing is causing them to have difficulty breathing, and we want them to breathe. And so that's what that's going to do for us. So on the next slide, it describes, you know, when you're talking to people about why it's important to have an opiate, um, if they use um, maybe uh, an opioid, even if it's something that they have for chronic pain, if they accidentally overdose, if they thought they took their medicine um, before they went to bed and then they were like, I don't know if I took it or not, and, I act, and they take a second one, um, and then they and they don't recognize it. If someone's around you, it could save your life. If someone else overdoses, you're going to be able to save their life because you're going to have naloxone on hand. And again, you can't get high from it. Naloxone does nothing <laughs> for people to enjoy using it. Um, and really, there's no harm. Again, if someone isn't overdosing, it's okay. You can you can use it totally. It's not dangerous. People can't get high from it, and you're not going to harm someone else. But you know, it is important that um, to have it around uh, for those people that might be at risk. So on the next slide, it shows how to get and store naloxone. So important thing is go to the pharmacy and pick it up. All states, every single state now allows access to naloxone by a pharmacist without a prescription. So it varies a little bit on 
what they can give you. Um, some of them uh, only give the nasal spray. Some will give you nasal spray and the injectables. You know, so it, the, the, they vary, but they all allow access. That's how important it is that we have naloxone accessible uh, for sure. So one thing that you may want to do, though, if you're thinking about your workplace program, is to contact the pharmacy first, determine what type of naloxone they have in stock. They may need to order the kind that you want if you prefer the nasal spray, and just ask them. And most everyone is, is incredibly willing to do that um, for sure. So on the next slide, we kind of highlight, you know, why is it important to have naloxone? Again, think about it in your workplace first aid kit. And typically with your workplace first aid kit, you want to keep it at room temperature. Like any other medication, um, naloxone is really best stored at a room temperature. They do have expiration dates as well. So like the EpiPen that you might have in that workplace first aid kit or the albuterol rescue inhaler that you might have in that first aid kit. Watch those expiration dates and you may want to get those updated as well. One question that I do get, speaking of expiration dates, is can I still use it? Is it harmful if it's past the expiration date? And um, the, the train of thought on that is go ahead and use it. Use the naloxone regardless of what that expiration date says. Ideally, you want it in date, but go ahead and please, please, please use that naloxone. What typically happens post-expiration date for naloxone is the potency is going to decrease, so it may not be quite as effective, but hopefully it's enough that you get it on board, that it helps that person, and then your ambulance arrives and can take over from there. Uh, big thing, too, is to just make sure others know where it is and how to use it. If it's in that workplace um, first aid kit, terrific. That's wonderful, and everyone um, knows where it is. Now, the second thing is, you know, how do we, how do we use it? And again, we want to consider workplace training. And one of the things that I do quite a bit is go out and train people in churches, in um, various businesses, um, even uh, uh, other healthcare workers or, or whatnot. How do I use naloxone? What do I do? I have this kit on me. What am I doing? How do I recognize it? So it's really nice to have some hands-on training with it. People feel a lot more comfortable um, with giving it. It's like CPR. So if you're going to train your uh, folks in the workplace to do CPR, you might as well train them how to give naloxone as well. So next slide really is kind of the brunt of this is considering a workplace naloxone use program. Um, CDC reports that opioid overdoses occur in the workplace, right? So we need to uh, make sure that we have that. On the next slide, it, it demonstrates that overdose deaths at work increased by at least 38% annually between 2013 and 2016. So, you know, these are some of the things that we need to think about. And what are those factors that contribute to higher rates of overdose deaths? Risky workplace conditions. Again, think about our safety-sensitive employees that are in those occupations, in those agricultural settings um, as well. Job insecurity, lack of paid sick leave, especially in an agricultural setting, um, a farmer, a rancher, you know, there's a time limit to getting that work done and they, they don't want to take off work. They don't want to leave it. And so uh, they're maybe going to mask the pain or if they had an injury, they're going to come back a little bit sooner and it puts them at risk if they're using an opioid um, legally or, or not, 
um, at, at that overdose death. So important thing to consider. So on the next slide, it kind of talks about, so if you are thinking about a workplace program for naloxone at your site, what do we need to look at? So first, let's think about what is the access to naloxone in my state. Um, obviously, again, call your pharmacy, figure out, you know, where, where you need to go to get it. Then look at those Good Samaritan laws in our state. Again, really important when you're doing that training or, or getting that training for those employees that maybe are going to respond to a first aid or really just your employees in general, let them know about those Good Samaritan laws. It does, it does cover emergency naloxone administration. And so that's important for people to feel comfortable with this. What is your access to professional emergency response? How quick can the ambulance get there? So if it's not going to be very quick, we definitely need to have naloxone in place. Um, if it's in a first aid kit, if you already do first aid training, like you maybe have an AED or you do CPR training at your site, add this training to it. Um, it's just part of that. Um, what are the risks of overdose in your geographic area? So it may not even be one of your employees, but potentially a family member that comes by or a friend that comes by to visit that employee that might overdose. You know, is your county more at risk than others? That, that information is really um, important to know, too. So on the next slide, it kind of talks about, okay, let's think about this. How are we going to establish a naloxone workplace program? First step, policy and procedures, like we do with everything else except paperwork part, unfortunately. So policy and procedures as a part of a program on opioid awareness and misuse prevention. And again, letting your employees know this is prevention, prevention. I just want to make sure we're not having any accidental overdoses or that we're identifying people that might be at risk um, for accidental overdose um, and, and what we need to do. So on the next slide, it kind of highlights some of the other pieces. So who in the staff is willing to take the training and provide the naloxone? Um, there is available training. All the, it varies state to state. I will say I'm in Missouri. So one of the big available training uh, hubs in our state is called the Mo Hope Project. And they are all over the state. There's people that are trained through Mo Hope to provide this training to your staff uh, or employees there too. So who, who on your staff is going to be able to do this? And then what symptoms do we need to recognize? Um, can we call 911 easily? What type of personal protective equipment? I know everybody probably has masks now, right? <laughs> but uh, so what other kind of personal protective equipment might you need? How do we administer naloxone? Again, do they need to understand CPR, even rescue breathing if needed as well? So the next slide, um, what's some other pieces for establishing a naloxone workplace program? These are things like uh, record management. You, you probably already document um, incidents, injuries, and that sort of thing. Uh, but we want to make sure, and regardless of the fact that we're trying to decrease stigma, there's still some stigma. So we need to safeguard the privacy of those affected individuals as much as possible, like you would any other uh, employee information, making that really confidential as well. Um, we want to purchase and store the naloxone appropriately. Uh, important to remember to stock a minimum of two doses. We talked about that a couple times. Uh, dose one, no response. Give the second dose two to three minutes later. Watch those expiration dates as well. Replace when they expire. 
Another thing to think about is if you're going to do the injectable one, you know, again, maybe having a sharps disposable container handy uh, for sure, too. And on the next slide, it kind of highlights what's the next step. So, so what happens when someone um, accidentally overdoses? What's the follow-up? What kind of care, you know, within your workplace, um, your workplace health program, what is the support we can give for the worker? Even if it's a referral to a recovery and treatment type of program, who is that in your county that does that? Um, is it your health system? Is it, is it another organization? Is it a, a behavioral health site? Who is that? Where do I refer my employees that might have an issue? And then, of course, program maintenance. Uh, reevaluate this program every year. Again, look at our naloxone. How is it being stored? What am I doing with that? Do that refresher training annually along with CPR and first aid. Guess what, everybody? Don't to, you all to forget, but we also have um, the naloxone on board too. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agrisafe.org, and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at agrisafe.org.